Welcome to 4 for 4's Most Accurate Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith. Today I'll be joined by Michael Beller of Sports Illustrated. We're going to talk in depth about the second tier of running backs. Then we're going to go use his recent articles at SI.com as a jumping off point to discuss the offenses of the New York Jets, the Kansas City Chiefs, and some other players and teams. Before we get to him, though, I want to remind you that all the songs you hear on my episodes can be heard on Spotify in the Most Accurate Podcast B-Sides playlist. Check those out via the link in the show notes. Today's track, Inhaler, by the British band Foles, is admittedly not really a B-Side. It was the lead single off their 2013 album called Holy Fire. But considering the seemingly infinite choice we have when it comes to listening to music these days, a song that's six years old can definitely feel like a B-Side. Anyway, the intro uh, of Inhaler is a slow and mellow burn, but it definitely picks up as the track plays out, so stick around at the end of the show for a heavier snippet, and be sure to check out the rest of the catalog from Foles on Spotify or wherever you get your music. I also want to remind you that 444's early bird rates are still available, but only through June 30th. The early bird discount also includes a $35 voucher to use toward a league with the Fantasy Football Players Championship. There's no better way to start taking advantage of your 444 subscription than using John Paulson's Best in the Industry Rankings in an FFPC Best Ball, and that early bird voucher lets you do it for free. So go to 444.com, sign up today, and take your fantasy game to the next level. And now I'd like to welcome in Michael Beller, the fantasy sports editor at Sports Illustrated. And of course, Sports Illustrated has a great partnership with 444.com. We're really appreciative of that. And yeah, you can follow Michael at M Beller, B-E-L-L-E-R on Twitter. Michael, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, doing well. Happy to be uh, talking some football here. Uh, feels like the uh, right time to really start digging into things. Yeah, and I want to start at the top of the draft with you because... It's pretty easy to look at ADP and say, oh, yeah, I want a top three or four picks so I can get one of these top running backs, you know, Saquon Barkley, Ezekiel Elliott, Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara. But many or most drafters aren't going to be lucky enough to land that top five pick, right? And so I want to take your temperature on the running backs who are going later in the first round and into the second round. And to do that, I figure we might as well start just by looking at ADP after those top five or top four. First guy is David Johnson. ADP of 6.5. Next guy's Melvin Gordon at 6.7. Then it drops down to Le'Veon Bell at pick 9.9 on average. Now, before we move on, how do you feel about that little mini tier break there between David Johnson, Melvin Gordon, and then down to Le'Veon Bell? I'm cool with it. I think when you look at that next group of guys, Bell and the few who come after him, uh, you have more reasons to, doubt's not necessarily the right word, but more reasons to feel comfortable about the guys who are going before them. For me, I put David Johnson even closer to the group of four, almost make it a group of five at the top rather than lumping him with the other guys. Melvin Gordon really started to really not started, but really broke through last year has been uh, a big receiving back over the last couple of seasons and is entrenched as a workhorse for the chargers. So I think there's pretty much no reason to be uncomfortable with any of those guys. Bell and the next group, you know, you're going to feel pretty good about them if they're on your team, but there's maybe uh, half a wart there where the other guys are completely, totally, no doubt about it, feeling great about them as RB1s. Yeah, good stuff. Well, let's keep going through that tier. So after Le'Veon at 9.9, we get to James Conner, ADP 12.9, then Todd Gurley, 13.7, and Joe Mixon at 14.0. Then there's another drop-off. The next player is going to be Dalvin Cook at 18.6, but let's talk about this tier break. Do you feel comfortable with Bell, Conner, Gurley, and Mixon as being kind of that locked-in, entrenched tier above Dalvin Cook and then Nick Chubb? 
Uh, I would actually put Chubb in that group with them also. I think that I, I have all of them comfortably ahead of Delvin Cook, and that's for me where the, where the tier would break would be throwing Chubb in with them. Um, I, I do understand the concerns with Chubb uh, that uh, Cleveland is going to have a very diverse offense uh, with Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, David Njoku, uh, ho- hopefully stepping up in his second year. Then Kareem Hunt comes back. Uh, around week 10 so I understand the concerns but we all saw what Nick Chubb did last year as a rookie and I think that there's more reasons to be excited about the strength of Cleveland's offense helping him than concerned about the uh, diversity and the the uh, how big the usage tree is going to be there uh, hurting him so I put him in that group but again no huge issue with uh, the rankings of these guys at least as far as their ADP is falling I understand the knocks against Chubb I'm just not too worried about them considering what the upside is. Yeah, and I want to tie my running backs to good offenses. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I see that these narratives are going around that, oh, the ball's not going to be able to get to him as often as you know drafters want. But right now, you know that's already baked into his ADP. And I, I think if there were more good running backs on the roster, I would ta- I would have more worry about something like that. I mean, they did bring in Kareem Hunt. We don't know how many games he's going to be able to play. Duke Johnson is still there, but it seems like Cleveland is really soured on him, and, and vice versa, Duke Johnson is really soured <laughs> on Cleveland. So I, I'm with you. I think that Chubb probably deserves to be closer to that second tier. And, I mean, even Cook for similar reasons. I, I think a lot of the warts with him you can kind of explain away. Like there are the O-line concerns in Minnesota, but the Vikings address that through the draft, through, through free agency. I think the injury concerns with Dalvin Cook are legit, uh, but I really don't like to draft scared. Uh how do you feel about Cook's injury outlook, and is that something that factors into how you evaluate him for fantasy? You know, the main reason that it does, Greg, is because uh, there are so many other guys who are going to be available there, and now we're not just talking about running backs. We're talking about sure. uh, the maybe the second tier or so, maybe the third, getting into the third tier of receivers. Uh, maybe Travis Kelsey's gone at this stage, but George Kittle's probably sitting out there. Zach Gertz, if that's uh, something you're into, which... Incidentally, it's something I'm not necessarily into, but I could talk myself maybe into George Kittle at this stage. Uh, And no matter what, for me, there's going to be someone on the board, most likely, who I like better than Dalvin Cook. And it's because of the injuries, right? I mean, it's we know how uh, costly it can be to whiff on one of your first couple of picks in fantasy football. And we know that there are a million things that can go wrong for every player, the healthiest player, the most injury prone player. So many guys, things could just go wrong, whether it's injury, whether it's team context, whether not even injury to them. Maybe their quarterback gets injured and that brings the entire offense down. There are so many variables that we can't possibly predict that I want to at least take uh, the ones that I do know and put a lot of stock into them. Given that Cook does have this injury history, given that there's a highest uh, opportunity cost associated with anyone who's got a top 20 ADP, there's almost always going to be someone who I'm more comfortable with at that range. Yeah, that's fair enough. The one thing I will say in Cook's favor is the way that that offense appears to be shaping up, the the way that their pass-run splits shifted in the second half Mm -hmm. of last season after they fired their offensive coordinator, that gives me hope that if Cook does stay healthy, he is going to be featured heavily in that offense, and that is appealing. I, I can see the upside of that pick. Now, let's talk more about you know those probabilities of upside and ranges of outcome because, like you said, a lot of these guys are pretty similar in how we evaluate them, and, and they all have little warts here, but they're all pretty good players. We like the offenses that they're in for the most part. And so I'm curious, just 
if I asked you to pick which one of these running backs was the best bet to finish as the overall RB1, you know, better than all the other rushers in the league, which player or which couple players would you tab for that possibility? Because we already know that the top four has that sort of upside. I want to know what you think about this next group here. Um, I've got one boring answer and one sort of more exciting answer for you here. Uh, I'll be quick about him. David Johnson, for me, is the boring answer, and I think he's going to be excellent this year. I mean, I think that we look at what he did last season, and we should be celebrating him more than uh, denigrating the fact that he was a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, uh, Arizona, last in the league in points, last in the league in total yards. The fact that he was able to be RB9 uh, in that environment with Josh Rosen, with uh, Steve Wilkes, a defensive-minded uh, head coach. Mike McCoy couldn't get out of his own way until he got fired. Uh, the fact that David Johnson was able to play as well as he did in that environment uh, speaks volumes about the sort of player that he is. And now you bring in Kyler Murray, you bring in Cliff Kingsbury, we're going to see a completely different offense in Arizona this year. And I think we get back to the uh, David Johnson of 2016 uh, when he was playing under Bruce Arians and piling up 2,000 yards from scrimmage and scoring 20 touchdowns. I think he's going to have an excellent year. Uh, one guy, actually, uh, who is not even in this list, who I would actually pick uh, if you told me uh, for sure going to be a top five running back over any of these guys is Aaron Jones. And I know that that takes a lot of faith in uh, in Matt LaFleur and what he's going to do as the head coach in Green Bay. But we've all seen it the last two years just how obviously better Jones is then Jamal Williams, uh, Aaron Rodgers basically begged Mike McCarthy to play Jones more and to give him the ball more uh, to uh, uh, no no uh, uh, actual result of that happening, unfortunately. But I think we're going to see Aaron Jones really take over as a workhorse in Green Bay. And you give a guy with that sort of skill set uh, 18 touches per game alongside Aaron Rodgers, I think we see him really take off this season. Yeah, I love that call. I, I'm a big Jones fan as well. And I think we are in store for some pretty big bounce back potential with Aaron Rodgers and that whole Green Bay offense. I'm really excited to see how that plays out now that McCarthy is gone. And and that's not to say that I disliked McCarthy or whatever. I'm sure that there was blame to go all around in that organization, but it does seem like Rodgers is going to come into this season with a chip on his shoulder. And I know that that's really narrative heavy, but at the same time, like I just, I kind of want it to happen Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean, but uh, let's get back to these running backs. Now we, we talked about, who could be an RB1 overall? And I agree, Johnson is probably the best bet. And that makes sense. His ADP is the highest of this group, right? Uh, I mean, we could also see it from Todd Gurley, from uh, Le'Veon Bell, because we've seen those guys do it before. I'm more curious about some of these other guys. And Gurley's kind of his own special case in that he has these injury concerns. And to expect him to bounce back to that overall RB1 level is you know, not only risky, but probably kind of foolish because we don't we can't expect the Rams to run him into the ground like they have over the past couple seasons. With that in mind, or with that said, we, we've identified that kind of ceiling cap of who can be the RB1. Now, if we look at this group and I ask you, now who's merely going to finish as a top five or a top ten running back, does that does your answer change necessarily? Because we do have to consider you know the high end and the low end of a player's mm-hmm. potential range of outcomes. And I'm curious how that calculus of ceiling versus safety affects how you will rank or draft these players you've identified Aaron Jones as a guy who you think might be the overall RB1 but you're not going to draft him as such right because (laughs) he's already coming at a discount you don't have to pay up I'm curious with this group of uh, second rounders and late first rounders how do you see that playing out and where I guess do do you find the safety and where do you see the risk uh so in the in the calculus of the decision making I think that 
the the risk is more important, especially with this group of guys, because um, you know even if we assume that one or two of them is going to go bust, most of these guys are going to come through. Uh, so I think that you actually need to consider the downside more than the upside. Um, when we draft someone in the first round, we are not you know I take Alvin Kamara number one overall. I'm not saying Alvin Kamara is going to be the number one running back. I'm saying of this group of sure things, I feel the best about him. And I think we need to think about that more than we think about what the upside could be with these guys who we are basically assuming are going to deliver 90% of their full potential. So I really put a lot more weight on the downside risk, and that's why I'm going to end up staying away from Delvin Cook in most situations why I'm going to stay away from Todd Gurley in most situations, why even though I've absolutely loved Le'Veon Bell his whole career, I could see myself staying away from him because of the new coaching staff. With Adam Gase, we know what his history has been, uh, going all the way back to Denver, then in Chicago, then in Miami, basically throws Kenny and Drake out of the offense last year. He brings Dowell Loggins with him, and they have a, a lot of shared history uh, in Chicago and Miami, and now with the Jets, and they have typically run – slow offenses, and some of that's been dictated by the personnel that they've had, but it does seem like a tendency that those two guys lean into rather than something that's just driven by what's available to them on their roster. And I really think that at this stage of a draft, you have to worry more about what's the risk of this going wrong more than what's the payoff of this going right, because you know, 80, 90% of these guys, it's going to go right. You don't want to be in the 10 to 20% that goes wrong. That's why I feel much better about Johnson, Gordon, James Conner, who I think uh, maybe doesn't have the Le'Veon ceiling of years past, but certainly has a very high floor. We know that Pittsburgh loves to lean on a workhorse back, and Conner proved he can be that guy last year. That's why I like Mixon. I think he's going to be that same sort of guy in Cincinnati. And like we talked about with Nick Chubb, why I like him, even with all the diversity of options in Cleveland's offense this year. Yeah, I agree that Bell and Gurley are the two scariest guys from this group, but I would push back on Mixon a little bit. When we're talking about this group of running backs, most of them are in, you know, ostensibly good offenses. Melvin Gordon, like we know, you know, with Philip Rivers at the helm, that's that's a quality offense in L.A. Uh, James Conner, like you talked up, uh, you know, how they like to lean on a workhorse running back. One of the reasons they can do that is because the rest of the offense is good. Roethlisberger's right. a good quarterback. They have a good O-line. That, that makes sense to me. But when I look at Joe Mixon and, you know, the O-line concerns that are still kind of carrying over from last year and just the fact that Andy Dalton is still the quarterback there, I, I have some concerns that maybe they won't be able to sustain as many drives be in scoring position quite as often as some of these other teams or these other running backs. Do you share any of those concerns just in terms of the Cincinnati offense as a whole? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I like that uh, Tyler Boyd broke out last year. I think that, uh, you know, with him playing alongside a healthy A.J. Green, I think that they uh, are going to have a, a little bit more of a uh, downfield offense than they're getting credit for right now. The O-line, obviously, is going to have to hold up much better than it has in previous years for that to actually come to fruition. Uh, I hear what you're saying on Mixon, certainly, and I think that um, wherever you, wherever possible, you want to basically invest in offenses as much as you're investing in the specific player that you're taking. You want to be tied to good offenses. Typically, good things flow from that. Uh, I do think that Mixon is a guy who, uh, unless Cincinnati's offense is a complete train wreck, and I do acknowledge that is in its range of outcomes, that he's gonna he's got so much talent and is gonna have so much volume that he's gonna mostly transcend any sort of negativity that happens with that team, as long as it's not a team that totally craters and goes three and thirteen. 
Yeah, fair enough. Now, when you talked about Boyd, I just kind of want to tangent off on this real quick. You noted that he broke out last year, but how much do you think that breakout was tied to the fact that A.J. Green wasn't playing? Because that's my concern with him, is that, yes, he put up stats, like he broke out from a fantasy perspective, but with A.J. Green back in the fold, do you expect Boyd to kind of keep up that level of performance? Because that seems a little risky to me as well. Yeah, there's there's a risk there. I think he can. I mean, A.J. Green played nine games right? I want to say off the top of my head, he played half the season for all intents and purposes. It was either seven or nine games that he played, seven you know, seven or nine that he missed. Uh, so he played half the season. So it's not like we're talking about it was a week one injury and then Boyd was the number one guy clearly from there on out. Uh, remember, Boyd was one of our very first waiver wire darlings last year. So he had those first two huge games with A.J. Green on the field. And that was week two, I want to say, that A.J. Green had that ridiculous like five catch four touchdown game against the Ravens on Thursday night uh so he was doing it while AJ Green was still producing then I think he also gets a little bit of credit for the fact that Andy Dalton missed the last five games of the year and Andy Dalton you know might not be a world-beating quarterback but he's certainly better than the backups in Cincinnati so he played five games without his number his starting quarterback he played eight games with a legitimate wide receiver one and he still put up the numbers that he put up, a second-round pick when he came out. So the pedigree was always there. I think it just took him a little bit longer than maybe was expected to become that player that he became last year. But now that we've seen it from him, I've got a lot of trust in him for uh, 2019 season. Yeah, fair enough. And those later breakouts are not uncommon for wide receivers. That used to be the norm, right? And then mm-hmm. uh, what was it? Was that the 2014 draft class that, that kind <laughs> yeah. of blew everything up? I can't remember. The uh, Odell-Mike Evans group? Yeah, I can't remember exactly what year that was, so uh, forgive me. Kelvin but... Benjamin? Kelvin yes. Benjamin's first and last stand. <laughs> Greatest tight end of all time? No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, all right, Michael, let's shift gears. I want to talk about some of the uh, recent articles that you've published over at SI.com. You have one on sleepers, one on bus, one on breakouts, one on bounce backs. And I read through all of them. I, I kind of want to pick your brain on a few of the players there. But before we get to that, you know, as I was looking through your archives at SI, I saw that you also dabble in fantasy baseball. Now, I promise this isn't going to become a fantasy baseball show all of a sudden. I'm just curious, what sort of lessons have you learned from other games like fantasy baseball or even otherwise, like a board game or a card game or anything like that, that you now apply to your fantasy football strategies? I know that a lot of folks will look at DFS and compare it to poker. Does anything else like that line up for you, whether it be from a different fantasy sport or a different game altogether? You know, I think uh, some some lessons that uh, apply to both, and this is mostly going to be focused on just fantasy baseball and fantasy football, is um, – Number one, always fade injuries, always fade injury optimism. Uh, you're going to hear good things about players as they're on their way back. Unless some disaster befalls them, you're pretty much only going to hear good things. And I think we've all bought into it one too many times or seen things gone wrong one too many times to uh, you know keep buying it and to keep falling for that optimism. And that is true in both uh, sports, certainly. Um, another thing that, uh, that stands out to me is to really just have – the uh, courage of your own convictions. And it, it really comes through in baseball because the player pool is so much deeper than it is in football. So you have a lot more opportunities to indulge your own whims and indulge, uh, you know, what you believe is going to be a breakout. Uh, and while we may, maybe don't get as quite as many opportunities in football, it's still a lesson that transfers over. Uh, sometimes you got to take that two round reach on a guy. And if you believe in him and you've done the research and you really have good reason to back up what you're doing, then don't worry about ADP and really go with that. And I think that's something that um, a lot of fantasy owners, especially people who are newer to the game, have a little trouble getting over that mental hump. But it's something that's totally worth doing because you'd rather you want to go out there 
and win with your guys, lose with your guys, but you know, trust that this is the team that you want, the team that you've built. Yeah, you can't be beholden to rankings or projections. It's a game. You want to have fun while you're playing it, and you're not going to yes. do that if you're mm-hmm. just following some set of instructions that someone else prints for you. You know what I mean? I, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. A- another thing that fantasy baseball has taught me is that ability to evaluate what a player is for. Uh, because in fantasy baseball, you generally are chasing certain stat categories from each player rather than just raw fantasy points. And what what that how I apply that to fantasy football is that there are certain players who, even if you have those convictions, even if you say, oh, I really want to own this player because I like watching them, I like rooting for them, they might just not make sense for your team, right? They, as much as you might like a player, they might not fit a need for what you need to put into your starting lineup each and every week. But that doesn't mean that there can't be some other format of fantasy football where that player makes sense, right? Like tight end premium leagues or super flex leagues or two quarterback leagues, things like that where... I think that fantasy baseball gave me an appreciation for figuring out when it is appropriate to play those kind of outlier type of players, the guys who don't normally have fantasy value. Because if you played in like a deep ale only uh, fantasy baseball team, you know that, you know, sometimes you just need bodies on the, on your roster, right? You need at bats (laughs) or you need snaps, you need targets. Like that sort of stuff does transfer to fantasy football as well. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally with you there. And it, uh, it speaks to, uh, the uh, diversity of the game having some sort of transferability uh, from one to the other. Do you think there's value in playing in different fantasy sports like for that reason or, or playing different formats of fantasy football, whether it be you know IDP or two quarterback like we talked about? How many different formats do you dabble in, Michael? And do you find that there's value in that? Most leagues that I am in now uh, have made the uh, switch over to Superflex. I really think it's by far the best way to play fantasy football uh in the modern game uh with how important quarterbacks are in real life uh and how uh flattened quarterback scoring is in fantasy i think it's uh, the best way to play is to uh sort of rejigger this uh quarterback value and make them as important in the fantasy game as they are in real life Uh, i do play in uh a couple of idp leagues which i find a lot of fun uh you do have to be a little bit more into the actual game of football, uh, I think, to uh, yep. to uh, really uh, enjoy playing in those IDP leagues. But if you are, it's a it's a fun way to uh, diversify your uh, fantasy portfolio. But I do like trying to play in. While I prefer a super flex uh, these days to a one quarterback format, I like to play in you know ten teamers with really deep rosters, twelve teamers with standard, fourteen team and sixteen team to really sort of uh, test uh, the, the limits of your knowledge. So I like to, that's how I like to uh, introduce diversity into uh, my uh, fantasy football life. Yeah, very good. I, I, and I promise, listeners, I wasn't, you know, holding anyone hostage for Michael to say that he likes to play two quarterback. <laughs> I, that, that's, that, that, that came out all on his own, I promise. Um, uh, let's get back to these articles that we talked about earlier. You had some pretty serious Robbie Anderson love in your breakouts article, and just at a base level, what do you like about his on-field game and his statistical profile for fantasy? I think that we've all seen that he can be a legit uh, real-life wide receiver one. I think that he, what we've seen from him over the years, especially considering um, the, the offenses he's been in, the teams he's been on, the quarterbacks he's played with, uh, that he has showed us he can, at the very least, be the best receiver on a decent to solid NFL team. I think that's the floor we're dealing with uh, as uh, for Robbie Anderson as a football player. Uh, 
2,200 yards, 2,300 yards, 15 touchdowns over his first three seasons. That gives you seasonal averages of about 850 yards and six and a half touchdowns. Now you think about these offenses he's played and he's always had a defensive minded head coach in Ted Bowles. They both got to New York the same year. Bowles is gone. Robbie is still there. So I think that's something that's going to uh, help him. Even though I talked about Adam Gase and Dowell Loggins having this sort of plotting offense when they've uh, been together. Uh, at least they're still offensive-minded coaches. And Adam Gase being an offensive-minded guy who's already run both sides of the ball, I think that's going to really help Robbie Anderson. I like Sam Darnold uh, at least as someone, again, who is NFL competent. It's certainly the best quarterback that Robbie Anderson has played with in his career. So now I think coming together here in the fourth year of his career, uh, you have – the experience under his belt. He knows how to, he knows how to win. He knows how to read coverages. He knows what he needs to do to get open. We've seen that a lot from him. He's got that deep ball ability. Uh, he has some success. Now he has coming together with that, the best quarterback he's ever played with and probably the most offensive friendly coach he's ever played under. I think that all adds up to, uh, the right formula for a guy to go from being this, you know, semi consistent wide receiver two from a fantasy perspective into a wide receiver one and certainly someone who I'm willing to bet on as a top 20 wide receiver. I just think all the elements are coming together for him this season. Yeah, there's no doubt about Robbie Anderson's big play potential. My biggest concern is that he didn't really pop last season until the end of the year after Quincy Inunua got hurt. But I, I think we can kind of write that off with all these other factors that are coming in to, to raise his value. Like you said, Darnold, uh, Gase coming in there. there. There's a lot to like about Robbie Anderson. Uh, but yeah, let's bring Bird off into a little bit more Jets talk here. How are you approaching the Jets' other pass catchers? Uh, Quincy Inunua, Jamison Crowder, Chris Herndon, who is reportedly facing a two-game suspension to start the year. But uh, I mean, you can factor that in or not. What, what do you think about these secondary targets in New York? Yeah, um, Anderson and Anunua, or excuse me, Anderson and Herndon are guys who I am, uh, uh targeting pretty aggressively. I, I certainly assume I still will be, uh, come, you know, draft season in earnest in a couple of months from now. Um, I already know how much I like Anderson and Anunua, or, uh, uh, gotta keep getting, keep throwing Anunua in there. Herndon was, uh, part of my sleepers article as well. Again, another guy who I think deserves a lot of credit for what he did. Last year, considering the fact uh, that this Jets offense, 29th in total offense, 25th in passing offense, uh, 28th in yards per attempt, 23rd in scoring. I mean, that is that's a bad offense. That's a, not only a bad overall offense, but a bad passing offense. And Herndon still had 502 yards. He had four touchdowns. He had uh, his uh, dalliance with being a, a semi-consistent streamer for the fantasy football community last year. And he did it all. Uh, very early in his career, and we don't typically see tight ends do that well that early in their career, certainly not on bad offenses. So the fact that he was able to do what he did on that team last year gives me a lot of confidence in him uh, this season. I'm not concerned about the two-game suspension. If it happens, you know, I'll play someone else. Uh, I'm obviously not going to have to burn a high pick on him, so it's not like if I'm wrong about him and he, he flames out that I you know, burned a premium selection. Just really like the way that everything is coming together for him uh, this season. And I really think that he's the next guy who I'm interested in. Quincy and Enwa, Jamison Crowder, uh, I think that they have their place. And I think they're certainly really nice real-life wide receivers for that team, especially alongside Robbie Anderson with a high-volume back in Le'Veon Bell. 
I just don't have a ton of interest in either of those guys for fantasy reasons, uh, just because there's very little big playability in either of those guys. And I just see them as being, you know, at best third on that team in usage behind Bell and Anderson. Yeah, Anuno and Crowder are projected for very similar numbers at 4 for 4 I, I think that we're baking in some notion that they're going to vulture each other for those mm-hmm. you know, types of intermediate and short targets, and that, that does make sense. I'm a little concerned about Herndon. I'm like you, though. I like him. I'm optimistic for him. But I do worry that he might also be hurt by the return of Anunua because he also popped down the stretch, I guess, to some extent. And all in all, it seems like a lot of Herndon's value last year was tied to those four touchdowns that he scored. And, I mean, he had plenty of yardage, don't get me wrong, but it does seem like the fantasy values of all of these secondary receivers could really swing depending upon where Sam Darnold's touchdown passes go. You know what I mean? Yep. And I think that that's tough to figure out because we don't know exactly how Adam Gase is going to focus or consolidate those targets. And if you look at you know the past years with Miami, it might indicate that he has that sort of Belichick-esque willingness to change up game plans, use different players in different weeks. And that's no big deal for like a best ball draft, but that is pretty concerning for seasonal leagues with weekly lineup choices where you know you have to pick which week to start a Quincy Nunwa or Jamison Crowder. Mm. Herndon, I don't think that's as much of a concern because if he's your tight end, he's your tight end. That tends to be a position you will just run out there and you know if they if they hit sixty yards in a TD, you're really excited. If they hit forty yards and no TDs, you'll live with it. And when they go, you know, zero for four targets and zero yards, that's when you're be- beating your head against the wall. But yeah, I, I mean, do you have any sorts of concerns about that, like the sporadic usage of these players, perhaps? Yeah, again, it's, it's like you said, with Anunua and Crowder, certainly, and it's why I probably will own them in zero leagues, maybe a best ball here or there when I'm just throwing some love at a, at a wide when I need a you know seventh wide receiver or something. But uh, not really with Herndon, uh, not only because of, of the fact that if I'm already believing in him, then clearly I haven't invested huge resources at the tight end position. Sure. But because there are a lot of guys who – do I like Chris Herndon? Yes, I like Chris Herndon. But there are plenty of other guys who are in that range who could – who I who I could craft the realistic scenario for them being a, a low-end tight end one this season. So I think you can play a, a Herndon and a Mike Gesicki with one another and uh, you know maybe drop one for the other or own both and – deploy the one who's in the better uh, matchup. I think those are two guys who who fit well together. Uh, maybe Austin Hooper is part of this group as well. Trey Burton, depending on how far he slides in your league. Uh, these are guys who, you know, you can really build a realistic scenario for a lot of them uh, coming through this season and being the number nine or number 11 overall tight end. Uh, so it, it, there's a lot of other ways to go with Herndon if things do end up souring for him in New York. You're just not really going to find that with an N1 Crowder. That's why I don't really want to uh, have anything to do with either of those guys this season. Let's wrap up this Jets discussion with the you know the focal point between all these receivers, and that's Sam Darnold. What's your interest level in him in fantasy? Because I, I haven't met QB 22 in my rankings, but I feel like anywhere between maybe QB 18 and QB 26 or 27 would be fair, depending upon how you feel about this offense and how you feel about this team. And ultimately there are just too many viable quarterbacks. So if someone else who believes in Darnold wants to pay up for him, I'm happy to take more established passers. Even if, you know, the career upside may not be as high for those veterans as they would be for someone like Darnold. Like if Darnold breaks out, 
I, I'll concede that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious where he falls for you in terms of the quarterback pecking order. Uh, and just to give a little bit of context of the early season, he opens uh, versus Buffalo, then versus Cleveland, and then at New England before a week four bye. So all three of those could be pretty good spots to be starting him. And I, I think that is a good way to consider which quarterbacks you want, at least in a one quarterback league, is how, how do they look in the beginning of the year? Am I going to want to start them? If so, then yes, I should be willing to draft them. Uh, what's your outlook for Darnold? Yeah, we're mostly in lockstep here on Sam Darnold. I like him. Uh, I'm first right now. I am certainly willing to trust him as a competent enough quarterback to support uh, someone who I believe is going to be a breakout receiver and someone who I believe is a sleeper tight end. So clearly, I don't dislike the guy. Um, I do not trust him as a uh, guy to start the season in traditional one QB leagues as a starter. Um, I would, I, if, if I end up getting my second QB in a super flex or in a two QB later than most of my league, then I'm comfortable in going with him. But if he's my QB two, I'm probably going to back that up pretty quickly with a third quarterback, because there are plenty of ways to uh, think about this jet season, uh, not taking off on the offensive side of the ball, uh, the way that, um, you know, the paper might suggest that they can with Le'Veon Bell now there with Darnold in year two with Adam Gase and a new offensive-minded head coaching or coaching staff, uh, you can certainly see the pieces coming together. But there's a lot of risks, I think, still tied to this offense. We do have to like that Darnold uh, looked much better toward the end of the season than he did early in the year. And again, we can't fully evaluate him the way that we can Baker Mayfield as a rookie because Sam Darnold was in a much different, much worse offensive environment uh, than, uh, than Baker was, certainly after Hugh Jackson got fired, Freddie Kitchens took over as the offensive coordinator, and we really saw that Cleveland offense come to life. We didn't really get that in New York last year, and a lot of that is not Darnold's fault. It's the coaching staff's fault and what was around him. So he's not quite as fully formed a player, I think, at this point as Baker Mayfield is, but still someone who I'm not really going to be believing in until he proves it to me first. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to find out, though. I can't wait to watch that offense unfold in the season. It's going to be really exciting. Let's turn the page here to a different offense. I want to talk to you about the Kansas City Chiefs. In your bus article, you called out Sammy Watkins as a player to avoid. And a lot of the reason for that is the cost that you have to draft him at, right? Drafters are assigning extra value to Watkins based upon an assumed increase in targets, you know, vacated by Tyreek Hill in theory. And I'd rather not go too deep on Hill, but uh, just with this type of player in mind, what is your approach to drafting players you know will miss time to start the season. We talked about Herndon earlier. Uh, Hill's another example of a guy who's likely to miss some time. So either to injury or suspension, what are you doing with players who aren't going to start the year uh, in fantasy? I pretty much cross them off my draft board uh, almost entirely. Two games is not, you know, so I'm not going to cross pick number 160 where uh, Herndon's ADP is last I checked. uh, The the two-game suspension he's going to stay on my draft board. But uh, but uh, someone like Tyreek Hill or someone like Kareem Hunt, uh, guys who are going to cost a little bit more, they've got that name brand, uh, they're going to miss significant time, I just want nothing to do with them. This is a game with enough variables where enough things can go wrong, even if you ace your draft. You could have you know two of your first three picks go down to injury. You could have uh, an offense just not uh, unfold the way that it looks like it's going to. Way too many things can go wrong. There's no reason to add a degree of difficulty. If a guy's already slated to miss six games, something like that, eight games, then I want nothing to do with him. 
and I don't care who it is. It's just way too much time to miss, and way too many things are going to happen between your draft and the time that guy comes back that you are going to have less flexibility for because you've got this roster spot taken up by someone who we're not going to see until the first week in November. Yep, I totally agree. I tend to stay away from these types of players. They're just not worth the headache, especially in those early weeks of the season when you really need to make fast and furious moves to kind of keep up with the pace of all the the stuff that's happening. Like we we were speculating so much about Sam Darnold, you know, two minutes ago, and you know, if what if Sam Darnold does break out in those first three games? Like mm-hmm. you're going to want not only to try to get on Darnold if he's available in your league, you're going to want to try to make moves on his receivers. Maybe Jamison Crowder, Quincy Inunua, one of them gets hurt, and then the other guy becomes a volume t- a wide receiver too like that's the sort of stuff you need to be prepared for and if you have one of these dead players just burning a hole in your roster spot just like creating a, a dead spot in your lineup or on your bench that just doesn't help you adapt to those early season changes so i'm totally with you let's get to the rest of the chiefs offense and i, I don't fully agree with you on fading watkins because i do think patrick mahomes is extremely good and likely to <laughs> elevate watkins uh, yeah no <laughs> shocker right but I, I think that he can elevate sammy watkins even if you know watkins is isn't that stud that maybe everybody thought he was going to be coming out of college. Like if you look at uh, like I go, I went over to airyards.com and just dabbled over there on Watkins earlier today. And you look at his depth adjusted catch rate and depth adjusted racer, both of them paint a pretty picture, you know, over the past couple of years, you know, above average production from him. Now that Tyreek Hill is gone, we can expect Watkins to take on more targets. Maybe not as many as some people would want. Like some of those are going to go to other receivers like Kelsey and like uh, the, the third and fourth guys there, Demarcus Robinson and so on. But yeah, I have to push back on Watkins a little bit there. Now, I, I don't necessarily need you to defend yourself. You made a great argument in the article. People should go read that. I, what I want to call out is this. I appreciate that you tied your bust call of Watkins to a bust call of Mahomes. So maybe you should explain that because there aren't going to be many people who see Mahomes not go as the QB one this year. Yeah. And I totally get why he would. We uh, just saw him cruise to an MVP award a year ago, uh, sort of broke the, uh, the game as we know it uh, with what he did last season. Um, But I just am very concerned about what his game looks like if Tyreek Hill's not out there. Tyreek Hill, um, uh, first, let's start with what he uh, with what his personal production is. Uh, 1,300 yards, uh, what do you have, 12 touchdowns, and a ton of big plays. Um, and, and, what, and those big plays were really key to, excuse me, do Kansas City's offense last year, not only because a 50-yard touchdown is a 50-yard touchdown, you're throwing seven points up on the board, but the way that that back, breaks the back of a defense and the way that that gets in the mind of a defense, especially when you then have another guy like Travis Kelsey, who maybe isn't going to stretch a D the way that Tyreek Hill does, but is also a big play waiting to happen. And I think if you take that element out of the offense, you are not only subtracting Tyreek Hill's 1,300 yards and 12 touchdowns and 87 catches. You are also subtracting this element of uh, danger and this element of being able to uh, completely uh, just torch a defense that cannot be duplicated in any other player. It's not just that this Kansas City offense was the sum of the parts. It wasn't just Patrick Mahomes does this, plus Tyree, uh, Travis Kelsey does that, plus Tyreek Hill does this, equals one of the best offenses we've seen in the last 20 years. Uh, there's a, 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 a multiplier effect because of how well these skill sets work with one another, and I think you take one of them away, you really get a different-looking offense. You combine that with the fact that 
you're even in a traditional one quarterback league where drafters are savvy and understand that they can wait on the quarterback position, you're still going to have to invest a pretty high pick in Patrick Mahomes. And if Tyreek Hill is going to be missing significant time, that just doesn't pass the smell test for me. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I'm actually with you. It's very rare to see a quarterback repeat as the QB1 in consecutive years, let alone repeat as a top five quarterback in consecutive years. There's just too much variance with touchdown rate at the position for that to happen very often. And so, you know, expecting Mahomes not to finish as the QB1 actually makes sense. Now, will he still finish as a top five quarterback? I mean, I think that's that's a fair bet. But at the same time, why pay for that, right? Why pay up at, at his ADP? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, I, I, as you were talking, I, I realized that I totally glossed over Nicole Hardman, uh, the rookie who's coming into Kansas City, as another potential threat in that offense. Now, if you're fading Watkins, are you buying Hardman? Um, again, this this is completely dependent on Tyreek Hill, and you and I are sitting here uh, talking on June 17th, and we're just not sure what Hill's status is going to be. If Hill's gone, then I am buying Hardman. Uh, I don't think Nicole Hardman is Tyreek Hill from a, uh, a football player standpoint. I'm not sure that he's got quite that level uh, of skill, but I do think that the Chiefs are going to ask him to be that brand of player. Um, there's a reason why they traded up to get him. Uh, clearly, they were concerned about what Hill's status was going to be, and they felt like they still needed that element in their offense while they are in this championship window. So if Hardman gets that opportunity, I want to be in on that opportunity, especially considering that it's not like it's going to cost what it would cost uh, if, if it were Tyreek Hill, if he were playing. So I think that there's going to be a lot of value there. Should Hill face a large suspension? Um, if that's not the case, and I think it's hard to buy into Hardman, but it doesn't really have anything to do uh, with Watkins for me. For me, Watkins is more the case of, uh, this guy's been in the league for six years now, and it hasn't happened. And if he were all he were cracked up to be, I think it would have happened by now, even acknowledging the fact that whether it was Buffalo, uh, the pre-McVay Rams, uh, he really hasn't been in a great offense in his career. I still feel like a receiver of the ability that he's purported to have is going to break through sometime in the first six years of his career. We just haven't seen it from him. Yeah, that's fair enough. Now, I want to get back to this idea of correlation between you know saying that Mahomes and Watkins could both be bust this year because I think that congruity like that is important when you're assigning fantasy values to players from the same team but we don't always see that reflected in ADPs right like for example you look at Adam Thielen and Stefan Diggs they're both being drafted as top 15 receivers but Kirk Cousins is the QB 17 so either the wide receivers are overvalued or Kirk Cousins is undervalued by ADP and I think we see the opposite case with Matt Ryan as the QB 6 but Calvin Ridley down at wide receiver 24 Austin Hooper down at tight end 11 like Julio Jones isn't going to catch all the passes there in Atlanta you know what I mean <laughs> he's so, gonna try I, I mean I I hope he does that would be <laughs> if amazing. anyone could do it if anyone could do it it's Julio <laughs> you can do it Julio we believe in you <laughs> but I, I'm curious how are you approaching situations like that? And are there any other NFL teammates that lack that sort of fantasy value correlation relative to their ADPs? And I guess, which direction do you lean when you, when you look at those situations? You know, no one jumps out at me as really having that, um, the, those sort of incongruities uh, in teammates. Um, I will say that logically that seems like that should match up, but we've seen it, right? I mean, we've seen situations where, uh, things have not worked out. I mean, just, I mean, Minnesota is a good example. Uh, Adam Thielen was a top 12 wide receiver last year. Steph Diggs was what probably a top 16 receiver or so. And Kirk Cousins, certainly, uh, even though he had those two receivers, 
was not someone who came anywhere near delivering the sort of numbers you would expect with those two guys. Um, so it, it can happen. Uh, Eli Manning's another good example, uh, right? He had uh, Saquon Barkley last year. Uh, Odell Beckham before the injury was having an Odell Beckham season, and Eli Manning was terrible that whole time. So I think it takes a mm, – how do you say this? I don't want to say an especially terrible player because that seems uh, unnecessarily mean, but it takes a guy who can significantly underperform his teammates to uh, to uh, make those incongruities match up. And I think that you can find that that we have seen that happen – in specific situations. But for the most part, I do believe that that's totally right. And, and I think that's true for, for Minnesota this year, even though we just saw that with Cousins a year ago, that either we're overvaluing the receivers or we're undervaluing Cousins. I tend to lean toward the former, that we're overvaluing Thielen and Diggs. I really like them as players. Um, another situation, though, where I think the real-life value maybe won't translate over to the fantasy game this year, uh, it's because of something we talked about off the top of the show with Delvin Cook. Uh, that was a much different offense with Kevin Stefanski as the OC than it was with John Filippo. Stefanski is there for good now. Dropped the interim tag in the offseason. Uh, Mike Zimmer basically threatened John DiFilippo, uh to run the ball more or you're gone. He ended up being gone. And Stefanski you know, sort of took those marching orders and, and, and ran with them, literally. Or he didn't run with them, but the running backs in Minnesota ran with them last year and it would not surprise me if that were the case again this season this was a team that after we saw the uh change in oc uh neutral script passing rate positive game script passing rate negative game script passing rate all of them completely cratered with stefanski running the offense and i just don't see without any other major changes why that would change this season so i think uh, you know am i fading adam Thielen and stefan Diggs? no i'm not outright fading them but it's going to take a tiny discount on both of them for me to have uh, confidence that they're going to be able to deliver on what the draft day price is. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, as with most things in fantasy, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Those guys are probably a little overvalued. Cousins might be a little undervalued. And just because he disappointed people last year, that's just recency mm-hmm. bias at work. And so, like you said, you can take those receivers at a slight discount, and you don't have to feel bad about taking Kirk Cousins at cost because we know he has these good weapons. Uh, but you're right. All those concerns about the play calling there in Minnesota are a big deal. Um, th- that other example I brought up with the Falcons, I am a Matt Ryan believer. So I tend to think that Ridley's actually going high enough. I think wide receiver 24 is uh, <laughs> pretty optimistic for him. Or maybe not mm-hmm. optimistic, but I mean, that, that's a that's a significant cost. Like there's opportunity cost of taking him, him there. Hooper is the one who stands out to me. And you noted him earlier. Uh, I, I think that he seems like a really nice value and I don't know, man, when, when bold prediction time starts to roll around, I might have <laughs> something about uh, Austin Hooper finishing like maybe ahead of Zach Ertz or as a top five Ooh. tight end because I see, I see the opportunity there for Hooper to make a big splash this year. Uh, I think it's year four for him. And, and like mm-hmm. wide receivers, tight ends, sometimes it takes a while for that light bulb to come on. I'm really intrigued by him. Uh, any quick thoughts on the Atlanta offense before we move on? Yeah, top five is a good. If you're gonna, you got to go at least top five. If you're gonna call it a bold prediction, right? You got to get, you got to get him in there. Um, the one, the, the most interesting guy to me in the Atlanta offense this year is Devontae Freeman, um, and I think he's got it in him to be a league winner. Um, that's not to say that I am going to be really aggressively targeting him, but 
he, uh, he's he's dropping to uh, end of the second round right now. I think that's a totally fair price. I don't think we're going to see much movement uh, on that the next couple of months. But talking about a guy who was RB1 just a couple of years ago, a guy who uh, played two games last year before getting hurt. Now Kevin Coleman is gone off to San Francisco, joining up with Kyle Shanahan again. Freeman's only competition on the roster, only real competition, is Ito Smith. And certainly Atlanta is going to uh, give Ito Smith his time in the backfield. Uh, but we saw a lot. We saw a decent amount of Ito Smith last year. And people fell in love with the nickname, uh, but the player wasn't really much to write home about. So I think that we could see Devontae Freeman get back into a real workhorse role in a strong offense getting himself 200-plus carries, getting himself somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 targets, and really providing this what ends up being cheap value as a late second-round pick because of the player that he's been in the past and what we know he can be when he's healthy. I think the paramedics heard you talking about Devonta Freeman and, and then just sent an ambulance out just in case. <laughs> you heard that? <laughs> yeah. That's my worry with him, though, is that – at the price he's going, I I just he hasn't played more than I think he's only had one full season on his resume, and that worries yeah, the, me. Yeah, the RB ones, but it was an RB one season. Totally, and and it I mean the overall RB one season. I like the talent, I like the player, but that injury risk coupled with the cost makes me lean more towards Ido Smith. And I don't love Ido Smith, the player, but he's so much cheaper, and that you can tell yourself that story that if Devonta Freeman does get hurt. Who else is there to compete with Ito Smith? Nobody. I mean, Brian Hill. Uh, we saw that happen last year. That didn't work either. So I, I don't know. I do think there is a lot of opportunity in this this offense one way or the other. So if you take that risk on Freeman and it pays off, like you said, could be a league winner. But you know that could also be Ito Smith in the you know tenth rounder or however late he's going. So a fascinating case. I really like that they addressed the offensive line there in Atlanta. Like they made that a really big point of focus in their offseason. Didn't really try to do much on the defensive side of the ball, which is actually why I do have that renewed hope for Matt Ryan kind of continuing yep. the efficiency that he's shown to the last three years. I, I think that that's his offense more than it is the running backs more than anything else. And that's why mm -hmm. I'm in on Hooper. I think that somebody else has to catch those passes. And in the red zone, Julio is going to command so much attention. Uh, we saw Calvin Ridley kind of delivered uh, all those touchdowns last season. I think maybe this year it might be Hooper because that does, that stuff does tend to balance out over time. Um, I want to throw out just a couple other potential incongruities that I've seen. The first would be Indianapolis's receiving options, just because you, you look at where Andrew Luck is going, and yes, he spread the ball around a lot last year, but they brought in some better talent this year, and I, I have a feeling that one of those secondary receivers probably needs to pop for Luck to be you know, justified at where he's going. And I think that he is justified. It's just a, a question of which receiver is going to be, you know, the biggest beneficiary. Do you have a, a take on Andrew Luck's, you know, number two option behind T.Y. Hilton? Uh, yeah, you know, the person who I find myself investing in in early drafts and who, as I really work my way through my rankings, um, ends up being the guy who I believe in second most on that team behind T.Y. Hilton uh, actually isn't a receiver. It's Jack Doyle. Um, I just think that uh, you know, he was clearly the number one tight end last year going into the year before he got hurt. Eric Ebron, we cannot take anything away from him for what he did last year, 13 touchdowns. We know the 13 touchdowns aren't going to happen again. Uh, but when Jack Doyle was out there, he was playing far more snaps than Eric Ebron. And it wasn't just the beginning of the season. You know, he got hurt early in the year. He came back in the middle of the year and right away went back to being, in terms of snap rate and targets, the number one tight end in Indianapolis. Then he got hurt for the season. Uh, the 
kidney or spleen injury uh, in week 11, week 12, and that was it for him. But I think that a fully healthy Jack Doyle gets right back to the top of that depth chart. This is a team that loves two tight end sets. They use two tight ends as well as effectively as any team in the league. I think there's a lot of, I think there's value, or I think there's production to be had out of both tight ends. I'm not sure how much value there is in Ebron because of the uh, uh, the price tag on him, but I think there's a ton in Jack Doyle. I do worry a little bit about what Devin Funchess means for the two of them, yep. but I think that Jack Doyle is someone, who, again, we were talking about tight ends with, with Herndon and Hooper uh, a little bit earlier. I think Jack Doyle is another one of those guys who can be someone who is drafted as you know the 15th or 16th tight end who ends up turning in easy tight end one numbers. Yeah, good stuff. And he is super cheap. So that's a great late round tight end target. I love that. Um, I want to bring this full circle back to Mahomes and the Chiefs. Just kind of big picture, top of the quarterback rankings like we were talking about earlier. If you're out on Mahomes, and you might still have him ranked as your QB1, you just don't want to take him at his cost. I understand that. But who do you think among the other quarterbacks in the league has the best chance to unseat him as the overall QB1? So I don't have him as my QB1, but I still have him uh, ranked very highly. For me, there are uh, five quarterbacks who uh, I, th- I see as being uh, above the rest of the league. It's Deshaun Watson, uh, Mahomes, Andrew Luck, Aaron Rodgers, and Baker Mayfield. And I'm not necessarily listing them in order because the more I think about it, the more I want to buy into Baker Mayfield as the number one overall quarterback. I just think that that team is so well built. I think that somehow the Odell um, the, the the trade for Odell is still being undersold in the fantasy world. Obviously, it's uh, being sold hugely in the straight NFL world, considering the fact that the Browns are, I believe, the favorites uh, to win the AFC North or uh, right there with with Pittsburgh. Um, so uh, obviously, there's being a lot being made of that um, when we talk about it from that perspective. But I think that what he does for that offense is similar to like what we talked about with Tyreek Hill. It's not just here's what Odell Beckham was in New York. Let's drop that into Cleveland and add that to Baker Mayfield's bottom line. There is a huge trickle-down effect on Jarvis Landry, on Antonio Callaway, on David Njoku, uh, on Nick Chubb, on Duke Johnson, depending on if he's still there, on Kareem Hunt when he is back, and certainly all the way to the quarterback, Baker Mayfield. I just think that this offense uh, has built something special. We saw what they did with Freddie Kitchens uh, as the OC last year. Now he is running the entire show in Cleveland. I just think that everything's really set up for that offense to go from uh, uh, an offense that was clearly building towards something special last year and reaching those heights fully this year. You do worry about the offensive line a little bit. That's a, that is a huge position group for any offense. It's hard to, when you can't really say uh, offensive line is the only worry, even if it's the single worry, right? Single and only, not necessarily uh, synonyms for one another in this context. Yep. But I think as long as that offensive line holds up, that we're really going to see this Cleveland offense take off this season. For me, it's Baker Mayfield and Deshaun Watson uh, really jockeying back and forth as uh, my number one quarterback this year. Yeah, and I mean, all those arguments you can make about Baker's O-line, you can make about Deshaun Watson's O-line in, in an even worse regard. So mm-hmm. it, it is possible to transcend that stuff, especially if your quarterback has a little bit of mobility, which both of those guys do. Uh, for me, I, I talked up Rodgers a little bit earlier on the show. I yeah. I do think that he has that ability to climb back up to the top of the mountain. I feel like we have one more great Aaron Rodgers season in us before he starts to tail off. And I, I look at like the career of Peyton Manning and how he had that just transcendent year in 2013 when he was 37 yep. years old. That was only a second year in Denver. Uh, this is 
uh, Aaron Rodgers' first year post Mike McCarthy. He's only 36. So, uh, you know, maybe next year's when that uh, <laughs> that will all come to bear. You know, <laughs> the same age, second year post McCarthy, like very similar to Peyton Manning. But uh, yeah, I think Rodgers is a good bet. Uh, Watson, Luck definitely fit the bill. The dark horse for me would be Russell Wilson. And dark horse is, is probably putting it lightly. Like we know that they don't want to pass that much in Seattle, mm-hmm. but I don't know if their defense is necessarily going to let them get away with that. And you look at the investments they actually made at wide receiver in the draft, bringing in DK Metcalf and uh, Gary Jennings. Like, I don't necessarily know if that's going to make them a, a better passing offense, but I do have just this very strong belief that Russell Wilson is probably one of the three best quarterbacks in the league. And if, if I'm just betting on talent, I think that he fits that bill. Now, would I project him for that? Would I rank him as such? No, I can't do that. But uh, I mean, for the same reason, you are, are you going to rank Baker Mayfield one overall at quarterback? Are you going to have the the cojones to do it i've already done it greg go check go check it out i've got baker mayfield number one overall and i'm not budging off that but i will say that there you you could i don't even think i could gene sterator uh slide a uh, index card between where i've got baker where i've got deshaun watson and where i've got uh, aaron Rodgers. then i've got a little bit of a deer break and i get to mahomes and uh andrew luck yeah so go check out michael's rankings over at si.com listeners we've only really scratched the surface of those uh bus breakouts sleepers and bounce back articles that he's written so hit those up as well uh, and of course there's the fantasy baseball articles i mentioned as well michael <laughs> has got you uh covered on, on every angle anything else you want to get to before we sign off here um i think everyone should come check out the uh great stuff that we've got happening between our two companies sports illustrated and four four this is year three of our partnership and uh we have got it to an entirely new level this year we've got a ton more four four writers contributing to si we've got uh, a lot more to bring you this season a lot more content a lot more smart stuff as you've come to expect uh anyone who uh knows four for four well knows that uh they're the smartest guys in town so uh, definitely check out everything that we've got going on between the two companies. I think we're uh, poised to bring you a, uh, a very entertaining, fun, hopefully lucrative and successful uh, fantasy football season in 2019. Yep, you're absolutely right. It's going to be a great season. The prep work has already begun, and I can't wait for draft season to really ramp up because as soon as that happens, it means NFL games and the fantasy competition are just around the corner. Michael, thanks again for joining me on this episode. Listeners, check out all his work over at SI.com, and be sure to follow him on Twitter at mbeller, B-E-L-L-E-R. You can follow me at Greg Sauce, and if you can, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Your feedback is much appreciated. Don't forget to head over to 444.com and lock in your season-long subscription before June 30th. That's when time runs out on our early bird discount and the free $35 voucher for entry into an FFPC league. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Most Accurate Podcast.